Welcome to this, an evening about, let's see, one of my favorite topics, death, dying, suicide, cremation, resurrection, grief. That'll be tonight, all in the next hour. And and anything else you want to know about related subjects. Um, By the way, someone asked me, uh, I think I had this the first first class, but if you ever wanted the most comprehensive book on Jewish views of the afterlife, (laughs) it's a book called Jewish Views of the Afterlife by Simcha Raphael, and uh, who is actually a PhD in psychology, um, but uh, and his wife is a rabbi. Um, and um, it's a rather exhaustive treatment of everything in Jewish history related to the afterlife. That's why it's so thick. And it's interesting, fascinating, and um, talk about it in a second. But anyway, that's sort of the definitive. Last name is Raphael. So, uh, hmm? chapters. Yeah, long chapters. It's a long. Chapter. It's a. It's an intense kind of book. It's not like light reading. It's kind of heavy reading. Yeah. So, you know, I like to begin with a blessing. So I'll begin with Baruch Atah Adonai. Eloheinu melech ha'olam asher kidshanu b'mitzvotah v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah, which is the blessing that we say at the beginning of Torah study, because we're studying Torah in both the narrow sense, a little from the Torah itself, and the general sense of Torah as Jewish study and Jewish learning, as in the phrase from the Talmud that says, Talmud Torah Kaneged Kulam, which literally means the study of Torah is equal to everything else. And what the rabbis sages meant by that was that you can find in the study of Torah with a capital T, as opposed to just the narrow five books of Moses Torah, you can find all the wisdom of Jewish history and Jewish tradition and Jewish values. So they, being rabbis, um, <clears throat> believed in teaching and learning and Torah, which is why when in a moment I share some thoughts about Jewish attitudes about the afterlife, the olam haba, the world to come, you will naturally find that the rabbinic vision of what the world to come looks like is this. You get to sit around the table and study because they're rabbis. So they're thinking about what would be the ideal thing. And in those days, unlike today, where being a rabbi is a profession, like I was a rabbi, still am, I guess, um, a rabbi professionally in the days of the rabbinic, early rabbinic period, Talmud and Midrash, those rabbis had other jobs. Often they were sandal makers and they were worked in the fields and they did things that that they would allow them to eat and have families and then they studied and were rabbis and were sages. So um it wasn't until much later in history that being a rabbi, like being a cantor, was something that you could do and get paid for as a profession to make a living and and dedicate your life to as I've had the privilege of doing myself for low these last 47 years or something like that. Terrible in math. 
whatever it is from 1976 when I became a rabbi to now. Um, in any event, yeah, so um, I made a note of one of my favorite sayings about death and dying in the Talmud. This is from the Tractate Yoma, um, a rabbi who said, anyone who wants a taste of death should put on shoes and sleep in them. And then when you wake up, you'll be so uncomfortable that you'll know what death feels like, said this rabbi. It was probably a joke. <laughs> Rabbinic humor. Okay, so here's what I'm going to start with today, because uh, I have a list of questions that all of you who have been here in previous incarnations of this class asked about. And the first one had to do with Jewish views of suicide. And I'm taking my jacket off, you don't mind, right? Jewish views of Robert, Robert Graham. Great guy. Okay. Jewish views of suicide and, um, and death with dignity and assisted suicide, whether it's physician assisted suicide or as is now legal in California, like in many other states, um, people are able to end their lives under certain circumstances by choice themselves. But first, the idea of suicide in sort of Jewish tradition, so you get a, a sense of it. Uh, if you look at the Bible, the Jewish Bible, the most dramatic instance of suicide is found in the story of King Saul, who was the first king of Israel, um, who at, uh, at the end of a very difficult battle with the Philistines in which his sons were killed and he was about to be captured. Um, it's hard not to make uh, connections with what's going on in Israel right now, but I'll pause for a moment um, before I go there. In the story of King Saul, which is found in First Samuel chapter 31, in case anybody wants to look it up, that starts at the very end of the book of first Samuel is a first and second Samuel in the, in the Bible at the end of the very end of the first Samuel is this story. Saul's about to be captured and he knows that if he gets captured by the Philistines, they're going to torture him, uh, before they kill him. And then of course they'll kill him. Um, so he begs his, uh, sergeant in arms, whoever the person that works that uh, follows him around to take his sword and kill him, but the person won't do it because he's the king. So he's, even though he's commanded by the king, kill me, he wouldn't do it. So he takes the sword and he falls on it himself and kills himself rather than be taken captive by the Philistines. Yeah. Um, and in the rabbinic commentaries on that story, the rabbis um, don't look at that in a positive light. Because they make reference to the idea that we don't own our bodies, that God gives us our bodies and our life, and it's up to God to take our life back. And therefore, in traditional rabbinic literature, we are forbidden to take our own lives. It's pretty much a sin. And in fact, in... um the definitive, original, definitive book on Jewish law, which is called the Shulchan Aruch, 
the Shulchan Aruch was written by a man named Joseph Caro in the 1600s, in 1563, about <clears throat> in the uh, Israeli city of Tzfat. And Shulchan Aruch is essentially this rabbi looked through all of the Talmudic and rabbinic literature and just picked out the rules and put the rules together because, you know, the Talmud is 20 volumes of conversation <clears throat> back and forth between rabbis arguing. There's the majority opinions, always the minority opinions, and there's all this intensive conversation, and eventually you get to decisions about things. Like, for example, Hanukkah is coming up in a couple of days, so I might as well say something about Hanukkah because you're here and I'm a rabbi. So um, Hanukkah is starting on Thursday night, the 7th. By the way, if you're one of those people uh, who ordered Hanukkah stuff through us, candles and things, they're all lined up here in the chapel and you should come pick them up for Thursday. In any event, um, in the Talmud, there is a discussion, and you've probably heard this before because it's famous, discussion between the House of Hillel and the House of Shammai, the school of Hillel and Shammai, because they're the ones who are always arguing throughout the, the Talmud anyway. And the discussion is, if we're supposed to light eight lights for Hanukkah, do you start with eight lights the first night, because there's eight nights left, and then seven lights the second night, because there's seven nights left, six nights the third night, because there's six light nights left, a tongue twister, or you start the first night with one, and the second night with two, and the third night with three, because it's the third night or the fourth night or the fifth night. Since we've all lit Hanukkah candles, we know who won that argument. Uh, it was Stramai who said we should start with eight, and then diminish one every night until there's only one night left and there's one candle that made logical, rational sense. Hillel, who, by the way, always wins every argument in the Talmud. <laughs> Hillel said, now, nah, first night we light one, second night we light two, third night we light three, fourth night we light four. And according to, and of course, Hillel won. But what's interesting and meaningful is not who won, but the reason that the rabbis give for why they chose Hillel's as the definitive answer. And the reason they gave is because light, the candle, the light, is a symbol of holiness, of divinity, of God's presence, of the light, in the light. Which is why on the other side of this wall behind me, in the sanctuary, over the memorial wall, I put a quotation from Proverbs, Proverbs 20, 27, I think, which says, Ner Adonai Nishmat Adam, Ner, the candle or the light of God is the soul of the human being. Ner Adonai Nishmat Adam. I think I translated it, the soul of the human being is the light of God. But that's what it says. So in traditional Judaism, you light a candle to bring God's holy presence, holiness, the presence of holiness into the world. You know, it's one of those things that I use, in fact, I did in a previous class here, as the example of when I talk about that I think the human being superpower is that we are meaning makers. And I always use candles as one of the examples because a candle is simply wax with a wick in it and you light it. And it's very different if it's a birthday candle or if it's a yardside candle. But it's the same thing, except for we give it a totally different meaning because that's what we do. That's what human beings are able to do. We go wave our magic 
Harry Potter wand and it suddenly becomes something that evokes memories of a human being when we light a memorial candle. My father's, my first father's yard site was a couple of days ago, 70 years now already, because I was four when he died. So when I lit the candle, the yard site candle, it's like invoking his soul and his spirit into my home, into the house. So the rabbi said, the lights of Hanukkah, lighting that light is a symbol of holiness and you never want to diminish holiness. You always want to increase holiness. And therefore, you increase the light every night so that you're increasing the holiness in your home and with the holiday. And that was the rabbinic kind of notion. Why I talked about that? Oh, because it's Hanukkah, and I thought we should say something Hanukkah-ish. In any event. Well, and also because if we're holy, we shouldn't take our own lives. Yes. So, Joseph said, in terms of suicide, yes, we don't have the right, according to the rabbis, to take our lives because we are a spark of holiness and we're not supposed to diminish holiness. So, in the Shulchan Aruch, that's where I started, which is this compendium of Jewish law, it says, for those who kill themselves, quote, we do not mourn for them or eulogize them or tear our clothing for them. These are all symbols of mourning. Right, or remove our shoes for them, another traditional symbol of mourning. We only stand for them on a line, this is if we bear, at the burial, and say blessings of the mourners for them, because people are mourning regardless of whether someone took their own life or not, and any other thing that's respectful for the living, not for the dead person. That is, we pay attention to the mourners, to the survivors, because at least our ancestors recognized the trauma of the mourners, of those who are left behind when someone takes their own life. Any of you who have been involved, either yourselves or with others who had the experience of people they were close to or they knew who took their own life, know that there are many, many traumas that go along with that, including inevitably a serious guilt, sense of guilt of everybody around them going, I should have, I could have, why didn't I, how did I not know, all the things that that people naturally say uh, when something like that happens. So, um, according to Jewish law, suicide only pertains to someone who killed themselves knowingly. In Hebrew, the word is ledat, that is... Um, not accidentally, but on purpose, and they have to be of sound mind. It has to be, it's only called a suicide if they were in their sound mind, if they were rational, um, if the person who died was angry or in distress uh, and announced his or her intentions, like to go up to the roof and for the purpose of taking their own life, jumping off the roof, you, then you could consider it a suicide if they announced in advance how they were going to do it, and then they did it that way. Uh, or if they did it out of compulsion like King Saul, it's considered a suicide. Um, however, there were many Orthodox rabbis and sages who disagreed with this, even though this was the majority opinion. And so what ended up happening was Jewish law 
essentially almost define suicide out of existence. Because later rabbinic commentators said, you can only call it actual suicide, as I mentioned, if someone is in their right mind, and they decided anybody who kills themselves is automatically not in their right mind. So therefore, it can't be called really suicide. It was something done under pressure, done under under extremities of one kind or another. Even though, according to Jewish law, traditionally, even if someone is, at the end of their life, terminally ill, there's no possibility of them uh, recovering from it. You are not allowed to, traditionally, to kill them. Now, on the other hand, and one of the things that they cite in, in the Talmud and Jewish tradition is the idea that God created the world with one person. You know, the very beginning story of Genesis and how God, in, well, there's two stories of Genesis, but in one of those stories, God creates Adam first, and then out of Adam, God creates Eve. We all know that version, right? And out of that story, the rabbis have several different midrashim, rabbinic stories. One of them is, they ask the question, why did God start creation with one human being? And the answer is, so that no one can say my ancestors are better than yours. That's my favorite answer. The other reason is something that I'm sure you have heard many times, which is found in the Talmud in the the Tractate Sanhedrin, in which it says, the reason God began creation of human, the creation of human beings with one person is to teach that anyone who destroys one life is as if they destroyed the entire world. And anyone who saves one life is counted as if they saved the entire world. Throughout Jewish history, from the Talmudic times a couple thousand years ago till today, rabbinic sages and teachers have taken that statement from the Talmud and used it to constantly reinforce how Jewish tradition treats the preciousness of every single individual human being on earth. That every one human being is as if the entire world. And they use this quote from Sanhedrin to prove that. And Sanhedrin goes back to the very first chapter of Genesis and the very beginning of the creation of human beings. Now, on the other hand, there is a famous story. This is how Jews think. On the other hand, there is a famous story in the Talmud of uh, a... uh, a rabbi who is dying, the end of his life, and um, he is uh, one of the most esteemed and famous rabbis in the Talmud. And um, so all of his students gather around and pray to God to not let him die because he's their teacher and their sage. Hi, come on in. And... Uh, Actually, one of your questions was about the efficacy of prayer when it comes to life and death. So in the Talmud, there's this story in which Rava was dying, as it was his name, and because his his disciples, his students, gathered around at the bottom of his house and prayed in marathon, there was always somebody praying for him to stay alive. He didn't die. He stayed alive. However, he was at the end of his life, he was dying, and he was in a lot of pain. He didn't have morphine yet, I guess. He was in a lot of pain, 
and he was at the end of his life and unable to die because all of his students were there and they loved him and they revered him and they honored him and they didn't want him to die. So they had this marathon praying and praying and praying. And because in the rabbinic mind, prayer works and matters, he didn't die. In this story, which is not over here, this is the Torah, in the Talmud, there's the Talmud in here, in the Talmud, uh, his servant, the woman who was his housekeeper and his maid servant, went up to the roof of his house, took an earthenware jar, <laughs> and threw it down into the courtyard where all of his students were praying, and it smashed and startled them all, and they paused in their prayer, and the rabbi died. And the story is in the Talmud because the rabbis praise her for stopping them from stopping him from dying. So from this story and from the conversation, the subsequent conversation among the sages in the Talmud, the whole issue of euthanasia, active versus passive euthanasia comes up, assisted suicide comes up, and what is the the resolution of this conversation is that active, what we would call active euthanasia, that is uh, actively being the agent of killing somebody, was forbidden, but remove, quote, removing impediments to death was not forbidden. And in fact, they even have some examples, shows you, a, gives you a little glimpse into their lifestyle. Talmudic times, they say, if someone is in the throes of the end of their life and dying, you are not permitted to place salt on their tongue, and you are encouraged, if there's someone chopping wood outside, to stop the wood chopper from chopping wood. Why? Salt on the tongue is a stimulant and would then artificially keep the person from being able to slip out of this life into death because it would artificially stimulate their body. They say salt. What can I tell you? Um, Just quoting the Talmud. And the wood chopper was seen as something that also would be the the dying person, because the last thing to go is hearing, would be able to hear and would therefore also prevent the natural progression of life to death. They recognize our sages, our ancestors always recognize life and death go hand in hand and death is inevitable. No one gets out of this world alive, at least this stage anyway. And that we are not supposed to, just as we're not supposed to kill somebody because it's not up to us, and we're not supposed to, in theory, take our own life because our life belongs to God. When God wants us to go, we're not supposed to stop that either. We're supposed to therefore remove, we are allowed and encouraged even to remove impediments to death. Now, what I didn't say is, even in the Talmud and among the sages, we are forbidden to take our own lives except in three instances, according to traditional Jewish law, there are three transgressions, three sins 
that in the rabbinic mind are like cardinal sins, I suppose you would say. And you are, um, you are not allowed to take your life except if you're being forced into idolatry, murder, or going to the rabbis, sexual immorality. I'm not going to go into the details of what they meant by sexual immorality, but the issue really wasn't about sex. The issue was about um, following, being forced into uh, following the, the values and ethics and way of life of other cultures, enemies of the Jewish people, um, which is what, like idolatry, worshiping other gods, and all of these in the rabbinic mind, where the rabbis thought at the time, a couple thousand years ago, in the rabbinic mind were, um, were sins against God, idolatry and uh, murder, because you're not supposed to kill another human being. Uh, I mentioned last time the the story, the the Torah says that you're not supposed to leave a, a convicted uh, murderer's body overnight. When they summon a capital punishment, they would hang them from a tree. One of the things they might do, you're not allowed to leave it overnight. And the and I mentioned it last time, the rabbinic uh, analogy is that we are made with Selim Elohim in the image of God, and every human being is in the image of God. And if you leave the body out, it's like you're being uh, disrespectful of God's image. And so even with someone who you execute with capital punishment still is made in God's image and you have to treat the body with respect, which is why burial in Jewish life, seeing to the dignified burial of those uh, under our responsibility is seen as the highest form of mitzvah. It's called the mitzvah of shel emet, mitzvah of truth, because the person can't thank you. It's, it's totally doing it out of respect for that. Now, here we are in the modern world in 2023, living in California, where, as uh, you probably know, I mentioned it a moment ago, we now have laws that allow people at the end of their lives, under certain circumstances, to choose to end their own lives. Um, I think all of the clergy here, at least uh, Rabbi Amy and Cantor Frankel and myself, we've all been involved with one or more people who have gone through that experience and been there to hold their hand and, and help them through that experience um, in the last year since this uh, law went into effect here in California. Uh, and um, it's a very powerful experience to be a part of. And um, from my own experience, it was one of the most um, sacred experiences of my professional life to be with someone as they chose uh, to end their life in, in that way, um, surrounded by their family, uh, as a matter of fact. Um, and, you know, Mordecai Kaplan famously uh, defined Judaism as the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people. And part of that evolution is um, to look at how we can apply the values of Jewish life in the modern world, in modern settings, that may be different than 2,000 years ago, or 500 years ago, or even 50 years ago, or 20 years ago, um, or when I was ordained in 1976, which is already a long time ago. Um, and 
you know, our lives changed. When I was ordained, for example, I was the only rabbi I knew who officiated at interfaith marriages. I was literally the only rabbi I knew. I mean, I've always done them since I was ordained, but I was literally the only rabbi I knew who did it. And it was a big deal, those who didn't, that I was doing it. Um, but now lots of rabbis do it, maybe most, I don't know. Um, but the more has changed, the time changes. And so too with how we see life and death, the, we still uphold the same values ultimately, but we apply them in perhaps different ways. Um, certainly seeing the, the individual as uh, unique and one of a kind and precious and sacred. Um, and uh, we don't make uh, decisions rashly about ending life, but we also treat every human being with the ultimate dignity. And part of that dignity is the ability to end your life under certain circumstances and get, and get out of the pain that otherwise would be there needlessly. The needless pain that's not going to prevent you from dying, just have you um, die slower and in more pain. So Ju- Judaism and Jewish tradition recognized that, and even 1,500 years ago, when the Talmud was finalized, um, about the year 500 or so, when, with what I said before, that we are not allowed in even in traditional rabbinic literature to end someone's life, but we are encouraged to remove impediments to the natural process of life and death, because we recognize that's a national process, natural process of life and death. So, um, I mentioned that Jewish tradition understood prayer as being efficacious, and therefore, uh, as in the story of actually the Rabbah, who was also called Yehuda Anasi, Judah the Prince, um, and all of his disciples keeping him alive through prayer, if that's the case, you have to take prayer seriously in Jewish life. You know, and I mean, you know that I say it all the time, that what you say matters, and in it comes out of uh, thousands of years of Jewish tradition that the words that we say are not mere words. There's no such thing in Jewish life as mere words. Words have power. Words have substance. Words are, in fact, the Hebrew word devarim, which means words, also means things. Same word. Devar is a word and a thing, physical thing. Because they recognize that words, I mean, after all, if they weren't so powerful, you wouldn't have all these fake words happening all the time, would you? All of this misinformation, all of this fake news, deep fake uh, on the Internet, and because what you say matters. Look at what happened, just one reference to the trauma in Israel, when all of the newspapers jumped instantly onto uh Israel bombed a hospital when Israel didn't bomb a hospital. Riots took place all over the world. People died as a result of the headlines in the New York Times and in other newspapers that claimed Israel on purpose bombed a hospital when they didn't. And because they people believe that, literally riots took place in many parts of the world, including people dying as a result of those riots because of words. And so Jewish tradition has always known the preciousness of words, which is why, now I am pointing to the Torah, creation itself in our mythology begins with 
Words. How does God create the universe? You know, Vayomer Adonai, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be this, and the world got created. The very foundation of creation in Jewish theology, in Jewish philosophy, in Jewish literature, going back to the very beginning of time, and the Torah is the power of words. And here we are in 2023 with AI happening and people's concerns and fears about that and all of the fake things that are going to be projected already are fake images of people that look just like them, that sound just like them. And with words coming out of their mouths that how will you know if it's the real person or not in the cancel culture in which we still live guaranteed in this next cycle of presidential race, you're going to have all kinds of things popping up on the internet and social media of people that we know in politics and other places allegedly saying things with their own voice and their own image. We captured this from five years ago, from three years ago, from whatever, all of them fake. And who's going to know? How would I know? You know, just like there are people, if you look at scams going on, internet scams and telephone scams, one of them that many of you are familiar with is somebody texting or calling and saying, Grandma, I'm in London and I just got arrested and I need $500 to get out of jail and could you please send me $500 so I can get out of jail, but don't tell mom and dad. You know, I know a whole bunch of people that had that um, version of that happen to them. And in today's world, you could literally get a phone call with your grandson's voice, literally saying that and knowing who you are. This is Tommy. This is Stephen saying, you know, of course, maybe it'd be Stevie if I was calling my grandmother. Anyway, so whatever, you know what I mean? And here we are in a world in which our tradition, Jewish tradition, takes words and always take took words very, very seriously. So um has nothing to do with one of the questions you asked, but. That's the way my brain works. Cremation. I'm going to go through a series of questions that people had. Cremation in Jewish life. Yes. No. Yes. No. Traditionally, no. Today, yes. Lots of yeses today. I do often memorial services for people who have been cremated. All of our cemeteries have small little burial plots now that you can purchase to bury the ashes of people who choose cremation. Traditionally, of course, one of the reasons that Jewish tradition was against cremation was the idea of resurrection, which was another one of your questions about Jewish, Jewish tradition and resurrection, that um, um, there has been, from biblical times forward, a notion about resurrection. The book of Daniel, which in the Jewish Bible, the book of Daniel, which was considered perhaps the latest, the last book written in the book, in of all the books of the Bible, um, probably written around the second century of the, before the common era, states, quote, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life, others to reproaches, to everlasting abhorrence. That's a quote from the book of Daniel. So at that time, in about the second century BCE, there was this notion clearly that there was life after death, 
for sure. There was an Olam Haba, a world to come. Not quite sure exactly what it was, unless you read Simcha's book, Raphael's book. Hmm? They even had fake news back then. Yes, they had fake news back then. Always had fake news. Always. So we don't know what it was, but we had the idea that there was some world to come. We didn't know exactly what it was. But the notion that some people, for some people, it's a good thing. For other people, it's not a good thing. Seems to be a human trait and characteristic. Also embraced by some aspects of Jewish tradition and certainly reflected in the book of Daniel. And the idea of resurrection of the dead became popular among many in Judaism well into well, to the modern time, but it was very popular in the Middle Ages. The notion that particularly, you can think about it, particularly as oppression would happen in the Jewish world, as things got worse, we'd start thinking about pie in the sky by and by. You know, yeah, Life sucks now. I'm poor. I'm oppressed. I have to live in a ghetto. I can't do this. I can't do that. But in the world to come, I'm going to get rewarded for this. You know, God's going to reward me because I'm part of God's chosen people. And ultimately, although I won't be rewarded now, I'll show all you guys in the world to come, I'm going to be rewarded and not you. You know, you'll be punished for your oppression of me. And that became obviously very popular notion in Jewish tradition that there's an Allah, a world to come and if you suffer enough through no fault of your own, you'll be rewarded in the world to come. And then not only that, but following up on this notion from the book of Daniel, that ultimately when the Messianic age comes, when the Messiah comes, when God makes the lions and lambs laying down together, Israelis and Palestinians going off together, in the world to come, one of these days, God willing, it will all be resurrected. And Jerusalem better be big, because we're all going to be back in Jerusalem at some point, according to this theology of resurrection. One of the reasons that we were traditionally against cremation is this notion that you're going to need your body if you get resurrected. You burn up your body, what's going to happen to your soul, because you have a body and a soul, your soul that's eternal when you die, goes back to God, according to Jewish tradition. And then when God chooses, God wants to resurrect you. God's going to go, what happened to your body? You destroyed your body, so your soul's going to be floating around. Now, I know it's not rational, because I know that our bodies disintegrate anyway. I understand that. But this is not about rational. This is about belief. And in belief of this theology, ultimately, traditionally, God needed your body to be whole. Yes. So, I have to donate your body organ when you die. Is that not, is that a situation? No. The idea, good question. The question was, for those of you who can't hear, in case you couldn't hear it, that the idea of, of donating body parts to, uh, for science or for people who need it. It's very interesting in, uh, because for the longest time in Orthodox Judaism, that was forbidden. For the same reason, uh, it's not yours to give away, even though it's your body. It's not really your body. It's God's body. In all of the other liberal versions of Judaism, conservative Judaism, Reconstructionist Judaism, Reform Judaism, um, in fact, uh, donations of body parts was uh, considered meritorious and a positive thing and a mitzvah. Uh, and but today, 
uh, in even in, in modern orthodoxy, also allowed to do that. Um, uh, there are those who say yes, and there are those who say no. So if you want to do it, you follow those who say yes, and if you don't want to do it, you follow those who say no. Um, but for the same you know reason. Um, but in in all the liberal forms of Judaism, the non-orthodox forms of Judaism, uh, donation of body parts is considered one of a high a high form of mitzvah for all the obvious reasons that you are giving life. You are um, you're giving life. So um, uh, also because it's about to be Hanukkah, uh, let me mention that. Um, the idea of resurrection became very popular during the Maccabean period, in part because of the revolts going on and so many people were dying. You know, the, it was the Maccabean revolt time in which the rabbis uh, changed a fundamental Jewish law. Because, as you know, Shabbat, the laws of Shabbat, uh, in Rabbinic literature and the Talmud, originally, and in the Torah, the Shabbat is a time of rest. You're not supposed to work. <clears throat> and there are 39 categories of what represents work in Jewish tradition. Uh, all these different things you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to sew, you're not supposed to work, whatever they happen to be, a whole list of things. Clearly, fighting is something you can't do on Shabbat, according to Jewish tradition. You can't pick up a sword and start killing people on Shabbat. It's a time of rest. However, when the Maccabean revolt started and the Maccabees were a fundamentalist version end of the religious spectrum, after all, they were the Hasidim of their time, so they didn't fight on Shabbat. Guess what? If you don't fight on Shabbat and there's a war going on, you're going to die. So after the beginning of the war, when people started dying because they got attacked on Shabbat, because the Antiochus and his people weren't stupid, so they attacked them on Shabbat, and people died. The rabbis of the time got together and said, oops, that was a bad idea. So let's have a different idea. The new idea is that pikuach nefesh, the saving of life, is more important than anything. Pikuach nefesh, the saving of life, becomes the most important mitzvah, even more important than keeping the laws of Shabbat. And if you have to defend your life and it's Shabbat, you are commanded now to do so because of pikuach nefesh. Similarly, they take the same notion of pikuach nefesh and apply it to things like Yom Kippur. I'm sure you probably heard at one point or another, you're supposed to fast on Yom Kippur. However, you're not supposed to fast if you're sick and the doctor says you need to eat or you need to drink. Or if you're pregnant and the doctor says you need to eat, you need to drink. Or because the rabbis said the words of the doctor are more important than the words of the rabbis, even though that's what we're now saying. So now you're listening to the rabbi saying the words of the doctors are important. Anyway, but because pikuach nefesh, because the saving of life is the most important thing. You're not supposed to let a mitzvah cause you harm. It's supposed to be for your benefit, 
not for your whatever the opposite of benefit is. What's the opposite of benefit? Damage. Yeah, not to damage you. Okay, so you can see how it can be applied then in many different ways. So fundamental law about Shabbat changed during the Maccabean revolt because of the elevation of the notion of saving of life uh, because of that. So um, but we have this notion that our soul is immortal, and therefore um, our soul is going to live on in God and in the Garden of Eden. Now, I mentioned in the very beginning that if you're a rabbi, you think the Garden of Eden is you get to hang out with God and study Torah all the time. But there were many, many different interesting kind of uh, interesting rabbinic comments about what the afterlife looks like. One rabbi in the Talmud said, the afterlife is just like this life, only it's the afterlife. You, you get to eat, you get to have sex, you get to sleep, you just get to do it forever. And you get to hang out with God. That's like the, bon- the, the bonus of the afterlife is God's around. Yeah. No entrance fee. Actually, the entrance fee is doing mitzvot. There is an entrance fee. And it's interesting that um, what the rabbis did with the notion of Gehenna. Uh, Gehenna, the, Gehenna is the, uh, the traditional sort of rabbinic term for hell because it's based on the, the Ge Gehenna, the, the valley of Gehinom, which is the valley right outside the the old city of Jerusalem, there was a valley there, and it was considered to be hell. Uh, they used that term because the Canaanites, uh, according to our tradition, used to literally sacrifice children in that valley when things got dicey with their crops or anything else. In order to appease the gods, they would often sacrifice children. Um and so the rabbinic mind saw that as hell. What could be more hellish than sacrificing children? And so it became the term for hell. And what's interesting is, talk about the evolving nature of Jewish tradition is, over time, it ceased to be hell as in like we think of Dante's Inferno, and you're burning forever in hellfire. And rather it became a... Uh, a stopgap, a kind of cleansing place in between life and the world to come that everybody went through. So they became this notion in among some aspects and groups of rabbinic, traditional rabbinic sages that when you die, you go to this place, Gehenna, wherever it may be, some location to be disclosed when you die where you are confronted with all of your deeds in life and you are appropriately sorry for the things you did that you shouldn't have done. And in that process, your soul, your spirit gets kind of cleansed. It's like AA for souls. You go through, you make amends, and and you move on, you move on, uh, to Gan Eden, to the Garden of Eden, some version of paradise after that, because everybody, which everybody gets to go to. There was this notion that if you are really wicked in your life, you got to spend a whole year there. If you're not, you spend a much less amount of time there. Now, may ring a bell for some of you. 
we have this notion of mourning that's in four stages, maybe five. Stage one is between the time your loved one dies and the burial. Stage two is the Shiva period, the week of mourning after the person is buried and you're in Shiva and the rituals that you know that go along with that. Traditionally, sitting low, sitting at home, you don't shave, you don't wash, you don't do anything. People come, engage you, just be there with you. Traditionally, if you come to a Shiva house, you're not even supposed to speak unless you're spoken to. You're supposed to be there, bring food so people can eat. And then there's the Shloshim, the 30-day period, where you're starting to reemerge back into your life. Um, but you still don't go to concerts and you don't go to weddings and you don't do traditionally, you don't go to happy things still in mourning. And then there's the first year of mourning. And then there's always the yurt site, the anniversary of the deaths of our loved ones. Those are the stages of mourning and grief. Now, according to Jewish tradition, when you're in the year of mourning, if you were an Orthodox Jew or a traditional Jew, you were commanded to recite Kaddish every single day for the deceased. Because there was this notion that by your the mourners reciting Kaddish, you are literally helping them move through Gehenna into the Gan Eden to the world to come. That your recitation of Kaddish is an act of uh, of supporting the soul of your loved one, which is why when people are orphans and when people have no family, there used to be professional Kaddish sayers that you could hire to say Kaddish for you so you wouldn't be left without anybody saying Kaddish for you because back to the idea of the power of words, our tradition taught that saying Kaddish really mattered. It, it was what helped your soul go through its process to reconnect with God. Therefore, we have this thing called an unveiling. Watch how all this fits together. We have an unveiling. The unveiling is that if you, after you bury someone, you order a, a marker that marks their burial spot. I did that for my parents, uh, who were both buried together, as you know, in uh, the same plot at Hillside. Um, and traditionally, you have a an unveiling ceremony. And traditionally, you don't wait the full year to have unveiling. Maybe 11 months, but you don't wait the whole year. Why don't you wait the whole year? Because there's this notion that the most wicked take a whole year before they can leave Gehenna. You wouldn't want to imply you need to say Kaddish for your your loved ones for a whole year because they're that wicked. So you have the unveiling less than a year as a kind of uh, notion that they're not that wicked anyway, whatever. But it all kind of connects to that same idea. And by the way, the whole idea of unveiling and the whole idea of markers goes back to the Torah. As you may remember, when Jacob had four wives, two main wives and two concubine wives. Um, Rachel and Leah and each of them had Bilhah and Zilpah worked for them. They were all wives of Jacob who had all these kids with them, all these sons with them anyway, 12 sons, who more or less became the 12 tribes of Israel. 
more or less. In any event, and you may remember from the story that Rachel died first. Rachel was Jacob's beloved. When Rachel died, uh, Jacob, according to the Torah, buried her by the side of the road where they were in a grave and put up a marker. And it says in the Torah, Jacob put up a matseva, a stone marker, so that anyone passing by would see the marker and know that Rachel, his beloved, was buried there. From that to this day, thousands of years later, we do the same thing. When we bury our loved ones, we put a marker so that when you go, someone passing by there sees it and says, oh, Jack Rubin was buried here. And someone cared enough about Jack Rubin, Betty Rubin, whoever, to put a marker there. One of the worst things is an unmarked grave. One of the worst things in Jewish theology and Jewish philosophy is someone buried in a, because nobody cared about them, so there's no marker. And so, now, in the Torah, of course, Abraham buys the cave of Machpelah, where he's buried, Sarah's buried, Isaac's buried, Jacob's buried, Rebecca's buried, Leah's buried, all these people are buried That It's the family burial cave. So those of you who choose to be buried not in the ground, but in a mausoleum, you're doing the same thing, more or less, that we did from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, and Rebecca, and Rachel, and Leah, other than Rachel. Uh, who's buried by the side of the road. You see how these traditions of life and death and burial all connect back to the Torah and to biblical time. So, traditionally, you're against cremation, both because of that. In the modern world, many, many Jews are against cremation because of the Holocaust and because of the symbolism of being cremated. Um, And uh, even today, when there are these uh, horrific anti-Israel and anti-Jewish uh, protests going on. Often people are shouting things like we should gas all the Jews and things like that. Back to re- making reference to crematorium during the Nazis, uh, which obviously is pushes Jews buttons tremendously and understandably and appropriately. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that many modern Jews are against cremation. But uh, there are many, many people who, and it's certainly within at least the non-Orthodox Jewish community, uh, increasingly popular, I would say, that for people to have cremation on the notion that maybe ecologically uh, something that they think, and also because ultimately your body disintegrates anyway. So, um, and I'm often called upon to, to uh, officiate at a memorial for someone who's been cremated. Um, somebody asked, how do you know when you're done grieving for a loved one? And the answer is you're never done grieving for a loved one. I sat with someone today whose father died uh, three months ago and who called me um, because he's having a really hard time uh, with lots of things in his life. Uh, And uh, that was one of them and didn't have anybody to talk to him when I meet with him. So I met with him today and uh, part of the conversation that I had with him is for him to recognize he's in the midst. Of, his father died three months ago. It's like yesterday. He just died. He's in the midst of this profound grief. And therefore, everything else that's going on in his life that isn't perfect is magnified and more intense 
because he's swimming in the sea of grief. And uh, there isn't a timetable on grief. Those of you who grieve and have experienced grief know, uh, you know, I've been the president of Grief Haven for 20 years now. And one of the things that always struck me is hearing people come up to someone whose child died 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and incredulously saying something like, well, it's been 10 years already. It's been 20 years already, as if somehow they're not going to be grieving anymore. And, you know, and the appropriate response is, I'll stop grieving if the person comes back to life. Then I'll stop grieving because, you know, it changes like all the things in our life. It evolves and changes, but you don't get over grief. You live with grief and it ebbs and flows uh, like all of life. Um, so, number one, if you're grieving, don't put a timetable on it. Number two, don't think you're supposed to be feeling something else that you're not feeling because you're feeling what you're feeling. And the most important, and I think the best advice as a rabbi I can give to anybody who is grieving at any stage of their grief is to allow themselves to feel what they feel and not think there's something else they should be feeling. You should be feeling exactly what you're feeling. That's what you're feeling. And you're entitled to that feeling at any time forever in your life. And it comes and goes, you know, and it's like, I mean, I use the same metaphor always, but I think of grief as being in a rowboat without oars in the middle of an ocean, in the middle of a river that's moving and you're being taken by it and you don't get to vote on it. And it takes you where it takes you. And it may be calm for a moment and then it just crashes right over a waterfall and you go crashing down. And it could be next year, five years, 10 years from now that you go crashing. And that's how it is. And then maybe it's calm again. And the best thing you can do is treat yourself kindly and tenderly and lovingly and allow yourself to feel what you feel. So um, I'm watching the time disappear. Can I add something to that, Rabbi Rubin? Yes, you can. Just as a life coach who works with people dealing with grief and working with people who have thoughts, as all humans do, I just wanted to add that sometimes in grief or in any circumstances, we have thoughts that keep us in grief, that keep us suffering, and that it can be very helpful. And this is no plug for me, but for anyone who's feeling stuck to find help, to examine the thoughts that keep us in that rumination and decide if we want to think those thoughts on purpose and intentionally, because our thoughts create our feelings. And so the sentences that we say in our head give us the vibrations in our bodies. And so I just wanted to offer on all of the beautiful words you've just shared that for people who might be suffering, there are, there are ways to examine that suffering and decide if it's something we want to continue with, or if we want to transform that suffering into love or compassion or other forms of pain or whatever we might want to transform it into. Thank you very much for that, because uh, I really appreciate that. Um, Yes, there is unhealthy grieving. There is such a thing as unhealthy grieving. There is such a thing as obsessing um, and ruminating in a way that's harmful to you. 100%. 100%. And there are several therapists on here that are all nodding their heads. Um, 
And I certainly didn't mean to imply that there isn't, even though I didn't say that. So I really appreciate that. Um, what I do want to make sure you know is that, yes, you know, grief, like all of our other, everything else in life goes through periods and you, you react differently today than you might tomorrow. And there's nothing wrong with being conscious of loss at every stage of your life and for all of your life. I mean, you know, my father died literally 70 years ago, and I've been conscious of that death my whole life in different ways. But it wasn't a debilitating grief that ended up with a rumination that kept me trapped in a way that I couldn't function, which often happens to people. And in, in an, if you're in an unhealthy, obsessive uh, kind of cycle, definitely there are many, many grief counselors out there and places to go and people to get help so that you can make choices along the way about how you're going to deal with loss in a healthy way. Um, you don't get to vote on whether you have the loss, but you get to vote on how you choose to respond to the losses that you experience. And that's another part of our superpower that uh, maybe I'll end with, that um, there are so many things, and as I was talking to this young man today, there are so many things that are out of our control, like the death of people we love. You know, we most of the time aren't super powerful enough to keep the people we love alive when they're dying. Most of us don't have that power, even though we like to think often that we do. This poor young man said, I could have, I should have, I whatever. You're not that powerful, you know. But there are things that we do have control over. And part of recovering from trauma in life is regaining a sense of the control that you do have in different aspects of your life. It's very important and very powerful. So time flies when you're having fun. Uh, okay. So my time is up, and I'm sorry I didn't get to everybody's questions, but um, I appreciate that you're all here and that you came to hang out with me. I'll do some teaching later on in the year. And if you have something you'd like me personally, Stephen Carr-Rubin, to be teaching about in the future, let me know, because I'm teaching every year and uh, once or twice. And I love to do something that people are actually interested in rather than just whatever happens to strike me. I'm uh, in the middle of working on a book on old age at the moment and uh, appearance and reality, uh, even though I'm only in my 70s. Um, but uh, we do what we can. So um, any suggestions you have? And I really appreciate you showing up. Those of you who showed up in person, thank you. Those of you who showed up online, thank you. And thank you, Rebecca, who manages all of this and makes everything in my life here happen. I appreciate it. And I want you to have a wonderful celebration of light as we celebrate Hanukkah. And um, this is my favorite time of year. I wish it could be Christmas time all year round because people are the nicest to each other during this month. And I wish they were the nicest to each other year round. It's the year, month of giving. Everybody gives and everybody cares. And it's the best antidote to depression because it's also the month of greatest depression in the year. The best antidote to depression is helping someone else. So find ways of helping other people and it will help you lift whatever depression may be going on because there's a lot of things worth being depressed about right now going on in the world. Yes, dear. I want to thank you for this whole thing. You've taken me 
into the Bible, learning new interpretations, and you're also taking me right now, which is the third month since I've lost Itzik. Yeah. And uh, I'm so sorry. He was a very special guy. How long were you married? 76. 76 years, right? Just want everyone to know it's possible. It's possible. They were married 76 years. Yeah, you were my oldest couple when we, uh, longest running couple when we had all that group, everybody re- renewing their vows. And you guys were there. I remember it was like amazing. Thank you. You're welcome. I so appreciate it. <laughs> of, of course. Anyway, Proximity, everyone have a wonderful Hanukkah and bring lots of light into your lives. Thank you for Thank coming. You.